My guest today is Mike Vining, an explosive ordnance disposal specialist, Vietnam veteran, and historian concerning all things bombs and explosives. His historic career includes completing the first ever operator training course for Delta Force, only to go on to participate in several of Delta's first missions. We discuss these missions in detail, from hostage rescue operations to assaults and even a consulting gig where Mike worked alongside a Medal of Honor recipient turned FBI HRT team leader in response to a prison riot. One thing to mention, Mike misspoke about how many helicopters were involved in the Grenada mission. His report accurately states that there were nine helicopters, but he says there were only eight. The extra helicopter was for the SEALs, not Delta Force. No big deal. I genuinely enjoy speaking with Mike and expect to hear him on a, on a future episode of this podcast. Because although we covered a lot, there's still so much more to cover. You obviously sent me all like your um, like documents and stuff. But what I want to start off with is after Vietnam and with uh, your involvement um, with the Secret Service with Senator Bob Dole. Can you talk about like how old you were and where you were then and what you were doing? Well, I was uh, 26 years old. Uh, one of the things back, you know, since Eisenhower, the Army has provided secret serv- support to Secret Service since the ISR administration in uh, looking for IEDs. Um, today, all four services support Secret Service in the VIP mission, uh, whether it be presidential, vice presidential candidates, or foreign dignitaries of, you know, high. So that's one thing that we do for the Secret Service. So the incident you're talking about was uh, in the fall of 1976. Uh, I was at the 63rd Ordnance Detachment, EOD at Fort Leonard Wood, and we were requested to provide four people to support Secret Service at Quincy, Illinois. Senator Dole had been chosen as President Ford's uh, vice president. So they were campaigning. And so Senator Robert Dole was there at Quincy, Illinois, and he was speaking at the high school in the gymnasium at the high school. So there was four of us doing the support. And um, that evening, um, Sergeant Major Foster and myself we took off to eat at a local restaurant where the other two guys were on post. And um, while we were at the restaurant, we heard a series of explosions. There was four explosions that took place. And uh, we learned over the radio that uh, four bombs had gone off, one at a bridge in Quincy and the other three were at a Coke compressor factory. So they sent sent, um, Secret Service the county sheriff, 
the other two guys went out there and looked at where the explosions took place, but there was never any connection with Senator Dole's visit. And uh, so that was it. Then the next morning we were getting Senator Dole, he had a chartered plane and we were at the airport and we were getting ready to, he was getting ready to fly out of Quincy when we actually got a bomb threat that was called in against Senator Dole. Um, and Secret Service, said, we had already searched all the luggage. We searched the airplane and the Secret Service said, uh, what do you think? And we, we said, it's good. We did the search. We're, we're confident in our search. So Senator Dole took off and left. And we were actually at that point released from Secret Service support. But the county sheriff asked us if we would go out during the daylight and just to look at the damage and make, you know, just give an assessment from our experience on what we thought took place and any conclusions that we would have. So as we went out to the Colt Compressor Factory, the, meanwhile, the fire department during the daylight hours was conducting a search of the area. And um, so there was these trucks, these 18-wheeler trucks, and, and the trailers were a huge compressor, and they had sliding doors, and they were all parked right next to each other, and they opened up one of the sliding doors, and right there in front of them was several sticks of dynamite, a clock, and a battery. Uh, the fire department took a Polaroid picture, and then they closed the door. I don't know why they closed the door. They should have left the door open, but for some reason they closed the door. So when we got there, they showed us the picture of it. So I was um, getting the tools ready uh, in case whatever we needed to render this IED safe. And uh, so Sergeant Major Ken Foster went down and he had the, the state arson inspector from Illinois was there. So he stayed a little ways back, but Ken Foster went down for a recon. He opened up the sliding door. And what I think happened that day, in my opinion, is that all the bombs that were supposed to go off are roughly the same tight time that night. This one failed to go off. So it was a large clock. Um, and I think that what happened is they just put a screw in the face of the clock and the hand went down. Instead of now being a timing device, it actually became an anti-disturbance device that the hands of the clock wasn't making quite good enough contact, uh, electrical contact to detonate the bomb when it was supposed to go off. So I think, I believe Sergeant Major Foster thought that he had it, you know, out of time, he had to do something. And I think he tried to pull, pull the blasting cap out of the dynamite. And that little bit of movement was enough to cause it to detonate. Move, you know, opening the door and closing the door could have been enough movement to detonate the device. And so, yeah, Sergeant Major Foster was killed instantly when that bomb went off. And he, today he's he's on the EOD memorial that we have at Eglin Air Force Base. That's where our EOD school is. And so, and 
he was inducted into in 2018 the Ordnance Corps Hall of Fame. Wow. And uh, do you know who was responsible for um, like planting the bombs? Yes, um, they they actually got a tip. Uh, I think the the girlfriend of the guy, ex girlfriend, tipped authorities off, and it was a guy. I think he was around twenty eight years old, and it was two teenage kids, high schoolers, that were involved in it. They went across the into Missouri from Illinois and installed the explosives at a construction site. He, you know, he had some kind of grudge against Colt compressor factory, the people there, I don't know what it was. And, and anyway, the, the two teenagers, um, they got off. Um, uh, they were not charged as, as minors and, and he, he was charged with a man, you know, type of second degree manslaughter or something like that. His defense was that he never intended to hurt anybody, kill anybody. He was just, I guess, destroying property. And uh, Ken Foster being a professional uh, first responder, uh, didn't matter so much. It was different. I guess the jury looked at it differently than it would have been if it was an innocent bystander. And that was in 1976. You know, the laws are changed and the laws are more stricter now. He would have got a longer sentence. And uh, a few years ago, I got an email from the guy who did that. I got an email from his daughter. His, he had a daughter at the time. She was an infant. And growing up, she heard stories about what her dad did, but didn't really know the truth. So she she found me somehow and uh, and emailed me and wanted to know what happened. So I sent her copies of the newspaper articles and my report on what happened. And of course, she was very deeply sorry with what her father did. But wow, that's that was uh, interesting to get that email from the daughter. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, can you talk about like what happened maybe um, like after, like what did you do after um, like that event? Like, well, after, well, after Ken, he was, I was the first person down to Ken Foster and there was no, nothing I could have done to save his life. And of course, when the fire department found that device they stopped searching the rest of the area so we had to continue to search the four three of us had to continue searching the area to make sure the area was safe to bring in the coroner and uh, and so picked up ken's body and then we had a bomb threat come up at the high school at quincy so then we had the three we had to go over to the high school and uh you know we can't, three of us can't search a high school. So we took the you know, people that worked there, some of the teachers, the, the janitorial staff, and we told them to search the high school. And if there's anything weird, unusual, out of place, because we wouldn't know what's not supposed to be there, just leave it alone and tell us and we'll go and look at it. So, so that, and then that was the end. The EOD unit from the 50th at Granite City, Illinois, came up and relieved us in case there was anything else that was going to go on. 
and we were done. So, you know, we the, we drove up to from Fort Leonard Wood to Quincy, and there was the four of us, and we drove home, and there was only three of us. And then, uh, so like in in the, I don't know if it was in your report or if it was just like one of the emails you sent me. Um, there was a two year time period before you went to Delta Force. So yes. What- um, well, that was 1976, and so um, actually, I was getting kind of bored with uh, post Vietnam stateside EOD. You know, going out to the the hand grenade range and blowing up dud hand grenades and just doing uh, that kind of stuff. So I wanted a little bit more excitement. So um, after Ken was killed, I I went through EMT training. I thought I needed to be better prepared for any kind of medical emergency. So I became nationally registered as an EMT. So I decided that I wanted to go into special forces as a medic. So I put in a packet and I had a school date too of October of 1978 to become a special forces medic. And, uh, but so while waiting for that, um, there was another unit that was forming up at Fort Bragg and that was first special forces operational detachment Delta. They were forming up, Colonel Beckwith was forming it up as a counter-terrorist unit and they, Colonel Beckwith wanted six EOD people in Delta. He wanted junior NCOs, and he, you know, if they had combat Vietnam experience, that was preferable. So what happened was that uh, <clears throat> through the EOD network, uh, put out that they're looking for six EOD folks, and the, our control at Fort Leonard Wood, the 543rd, the sergeant major knew I was getting ready to leave, you know, and going to special forces. And so he called me up and says, hey, Mike, uh, they're forming a new unit up at uh, Fort Bragg. And uh, it might be something that you would be interested in. So he gave me the telephone number. I called the telephone number, talked to somebody there. And they said, would you be able to come for an interview in two days? And I said, sure. So in two days I flew to Fort Bragg at, at the old, on Butner Road, the old stockade, because uh, they took over the old stockade. There was about, I think, three or four prisoners in the stockade. They just put them in the county jail and Delta took over the stockade. And uh, so I went there for my interview. And, and two weeks later, um, I got orders for Delta and I started right into OTC-1, Operating Training Course 1. So that was uh, started up in March of 78. So I never did go become a special forces medic. And uh, it was that interview with uh, Colonel Beckwith. Yes. I, you know, it was with uh, Colonel Burris, Bucky, well, major at the time, Bucky Burris. And then I had to see uh, Beckwith. That was my first encounter with Charlie Beckwith. And um, yeah, he was looking for six EOD. So we, he recruited for OTC one, there were six of us in OTC-1, but uh, only two of us made it through OTC-1. And then in OTC-2, there was six more EOD in OTC-2, and only one person, one EOD, made it through there. So we didn't have, we didn't come in time. OTC-1 was starting up, so we didn't go through the selection assessment 
course. But it was told to us that we went through OTC, but we would have to still go through selection assessment. And so, um, and we had to pass selection assessment to guarantee us to stay there. So he wanted us to be fully, he wanted the UD folks to be fully operator, fully integrated into the unit. And uh, so in the fall of 1978, uh, the three of us went through, well, there actually was four of us that went through OTC in the fall of 78, but only three of us made it through. Um, so, and that was it for a while. We only had, instead of six EOD folks in Delta, we only had three of us. Um, so what they did, they took, they still wanted six. So Colonel Beckwith um, the, asked uh, some, of, there was three, special forces at the time 12B, now it's 18 Charlies, but back then it was 12B, special forces demo guys. There was three E7s that um, volunteered to go to EOD school. So the thing is, you, in order to go to EOD school back then, you had to be no higher in rank as than E5. So we made these three E7s E5s and, uh, and we sent them to EOD school, but they, there were people in, at the schoolhouse, you know, at the administration knew what was going on. We made an agreement with them that uh, they would never be awarded the MOS because they were, you know, too senior. Uh, EOD, we like to get folks into EOD early um, because it's built up on experience, you know, to be at E6 and above, you're a team leader. But it takes a while to have experience in the field working with IEDs and DUD ordinance. And uh, so, so anyway, they went through EOD school. So we did have six. So those three guys then would be our assistants. So for ex I was assigned to B squadron. So I had myself and, and one of the other special forces demo guys we were both in B squadron and, and then in A squadron, we had another EOD guy and another special and then selection and, and a set, uh, SET uh, selection and evaluation. We had two more. So that was it in the beginning, um, how EOD got into Delta. And uh, just going back like a little bit, um, were there any counterterrorism teams or like a special missions unit before there was Delta Force? Oh, yeah, it was the 2-2 SAS, the British 2-2 SAS. Um, Beckwith had, um, I think it was in the 60s, he spent time with 2-2 SAS uh, when they were having problems in uh, Malaysia uh, you know, guerrilla in Malaysia. So Beckwith had, as, as an American, went over there as a, a liaison person and watched the 2-2 SAS. So he modeled, Delta is actually modeled on the 2-2 SAS. Um, the other counter-terrorist units that were out there in the world, what, one of them was uh, GSG-9, which is the German counter-terrorist. GSG-9 is made up of their um, people that uh, their border patrol people. That's where they come from. So, and after the 1974 Olympics, you remember when the Palestine, the PLO killed the Israeli athletes at Munich, 
that's when Germany set up GSG-9. And then the French, their counter-terrorist is, is G-I-G-N. So there was some other ones, but uh, so that, so we had some guys from 22SAS that came over to an OTC-1 to teach us to shoot. Uh, double tapping. Uh, we, our targets were three by five index cards. We shot a lot of three by five index cards. Um, and we, you know, we learned how to do double tap instinctive shooting. At the time, our assault weapons were the M3 grease gun, the, you know, 45 caliber. We would carry two M1911s. Uh, match 1911s, and we would have the M3 grease gun. Beckwith believed that he wanted common ammunition that, you know, you can use in the grease gun or you could use the same ammo in the, the M1911 pistol. Uh, then Beckwith had all of our sights cut off on our grease gun. Uh, and as you know, a grease gun is fired from open bolt. It's not a very accurate weapon, but it's good for CQB close encounter. So you have a cover, the safety on a grease gun is the cover. Once you remove the cover, there's no other safety. You pull the trigger and the bolt goes forward and it fires. But the thing about the, the rate of fire on the M3 grease gun is so slow that you, with a finger control, you can easily do what's called the double tap. You can look at, you know, shoot a target with a finger control, put two rounds on a target, move to a different target, put two rounds, and, and you could get the timing down uh, to do that. But so, and to make it more safe, and uh, one of our um, operators was good at working weapons and stuff, he designed a... Um, safety that was in the uh, pistol handle of the grease gun. So it's called the hall safety. And so now we can have the cover open and then we have a safety there by our, the pistol grip of the grease gun that like normal grease guns don't, didn't have that safety. So then that's what we did. And from there, then we went to the next weapon, that assault weapon we upgraded it to is the MP5. Heckler & Koch MP5 9mm. We had initially a lot of problems with the MP5 when we first got it. And it was because the military stockpile of 9mm ammunition back then, because uh, you know, the standard sidearm was a 45, uh, like the 9mm ammunition was like it, uh, done in the 1950s. So the ammunition was really terrible. Um, it would foul, the powder would foul. Uh, you know, we even had a couple times where a bullet would not fully exit the barrel because it was bad ammunition. So once we got in some good nine millimeter ammunition, then the MP5 worked good, but this 1950 ammunition was pretty lousy. Um, and then we went to the CAR-15 uh, and then to the, the M4 for weapons. And can you talk a little bit about uh, like Beckwith a little bit, like his background and why he was basically, or not cho maybe chosen or why he um, started Delta Force? You got Colonel Beckwith, um, 
when he goes, when he got into a room, everybody knew he was in a room. He was the advocate. He was the one that pushed for a counter-terrorist organization, that the United States would have a counter-terrorist organization. And some of his idea was based on, you know, the Sante raid in, in North Vietnam in 1970, what was it, 1970? Might have been one. Yeah, 71. Uh, you know, they we had to form up the, the people and train up at Fort Bragg, get the group together, train up and do the mission. So there was a long time lag between the train up and doing the mission at Sante. He wanted to have a POW rescue force, a hostage and also a hostage rescue force on standby within two hours being wheels up and and going already trained up now what happened at Sante was um, just a bunch of unfortunate circumstances because the monsoons the monsoons came in and um, flooded the Sante camp and so they moved the prisoners so when they did the raid by the time they executed the raid the prison, there was no prisoners at Sante. Uh, otherwise, I think the mission would have been highly successful. Um, so that was the Colonel Beckwith, and he uh, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, stepped on a lot of toes, but finally convinced the powers to be to have a stand-up, fully you know counter-terrorist unit to do hostage rescue missions and POW are only unclassified in the beginning, our only unclassified mission that we had was POW rescue. All of our other missions were classified. And I uh, just looked up the Sante raid. It was actually 1970, but yeah. still. And um, I, I'm also aware there was like a unit uh, maybe before Delta Force called Blue Light. True. Blue Light was a, a fifth group. Uh, it was a group in fifth group. A lot of them were Vietnam uh, veterans, uh, and they so immediately they stood up what they call blue light and uh, in fifth group in, until we became fully operational and validated. We had to go through a validate, the unit had to go through a validation process, and we did not complete our validation process until it was like October of 1979, when we had enough, recruited enough people, trained up enough people, and we did our final evaluation. Um, and so uh, while we were doing all this, doing the training, uh, if a mission would have came up, it would have been blue light, which was fifth group. Um, in the beginning, a lot of people didn't know the difference between Delta and Blue Light. They, the news people didn't know the difference. They thought Delta and Blue Light was the same thing. Now, when we stood up and valid, got validated, Beckwith went over and talked to the Blue Light people and um, said that they could try out for Delta, but they would have to go through the selection and assessment course. Uh, there's quite a few that did not think they had to go through selection assessment, that they should have just became, go over to Delta without going through it. But we did get several people from Blue Light that, that went through the selection assessment course. And uh, so those were the, that was the other group. 
And what you do was Operation Eagle Claw, the first uh, like real world mission that you went on? Our first world, yeah. So we just got validated, just got validated in October. So now I was in B Squadron. So we're going to do winter training uh, at, um, so we're going to do, we do environmental. So we started cycles on environmental training. So we're going to do our first winter training at, uh, by Breckenridge, Colorado. And so we were out at Breckenridge, Colorado, going through winter training and ski training and everything. Uh, Beckwith wanted us to be able to do everything and to ski and, you know, climb and uh, mobility, drive different vehicles and, you know, do as a counter-terrorist, we needed to do all kinds of skills. So we're doing winter training and that's when the, the second time the embassy, American embassy was taken in Tehran. Uh, that was uh, November 4th of 1979 that the, the revolutionary group there took, took uh, them. And this time, like, not like before, this time they held the Americans there. They uh, initially captured as hostages, 66 Americans. And then, so as soon as that took place, we got, we got the word to come back to Fort Bragg. So we flew back to Fort Bragg, uh, landed out there at, um, um, what's it called? At, out at the Aberdeen area uh, at Fort Bragg. And uh, then we uh, went into isolation. We went up to uh, Virginia uh, Camp Perry, the, known as the farm. And so we started, went into isolation and that's where we trained up for the mission. Now, initially the mission was called Operation Rice Bowl. And the reason they picked the name Rice Bowl is that if anybody got wind of what we were doing, hopefully they would think that we were doing something in Southeast Asia, maybe something, you know, there's still, you know, talk about that there were still Americans being held uh, from the Vietnam War in, in Southeast Asia. So anyway, our cover was Operation Rice Bowl. As soon as we mission became operational, and we, uh, then it became Operation Eagle Claw. Sounds a little bit more you know, fighting spirit, spirit uh, Eagle Claw than Rice Bowl. So uh, yeah, and then we did, so we then did training out at Yuma uh, proving grounds did for the for the mission. We uh, did also training out there in California, uh, Fort Irwin, um, and uh, and since we did some training too for the mission at, out there at uh, Nevada at the Nevada test site. So and then of course the mission was launched in April. It was April 24th that we launched the mission. Um, so we flew to, from, from Camp Perry, we flew to uh, Wadakinia. Wadakinia was our uh, secondary staging base. Then we went to Masseria, the island of Oman. That was our forward station base. And then we launched the mission that night. Um, 
and of course, uh, once we got there, things didn't go good. When we landed, uh, I was on the first MC-130 to land. Well, as we were getting ready to land, um, we saw headlights on a road down below. So they did a couple circles until those headlights passed. This was supposed to be in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's driving this road. So then when we land and we you know, get out of the, the MC-130, here we see headlights coming down the road again. Beckwith hollers, uh, stop that vehicle. It was a bus. So... Um, so, uh, somebody fired a 40 millimeter round in front of the bus, the bus stopped. And then we had, uh, there was 44 Iranians on board the bus. So we now had 44 Iranian detainees that we had to deal with. So I went on the bus, searched the bus, nothing, there was nothing on the bus. And then we just moved the bus out of the way. And we had the Iranians on the side of the road in a ditch and guarding the Iranians. So the plan would have been to, um, when the fixed wing aircraft left Desert One, they would take the Iranians with them, and then at some later time, they would be released. It was just recently I learned that all those Iranians that were on the bus were all related to each other. They were actually going to some kind of family reunion. They were on their way. And uh, next thing you know, and I tell you, they, they were scared. Uh, and, of course, aircraft were landing. Eventually, helicopters got there. Um, of course, we also had the fuel truck that was behind the bus. So one of the rangers fired a law at the fuel truck. It hit down below the field truck and detonated into the ground underneath the tank of the field truck, but it was enough to cause the field truck to catch on fire. The guy jumps out of the field truck, runs to a vehicle that was behind it, and then they take off. So now you got the field truck that's burning, and then later on it exploded, a huge fireball in the sky. Um, that, and so anyway, finally the helicopters came in. We had Eight of them were launched off the Nimitz. Only six of them made it to Desert One, and they were way late. Uh, you know, right now the fixed wing had to get be getting out of there. So we had three MC-130s on the ground. We had three EC-130s, and the EC-130s had fuel bladders on there with about 5,000 gallons each of fuel to refill the helicopters. Um Anyway, the sixth helicopter, one of the helicopters developed a hydraulic problem. So we were down to five helicopters. That was not enough to do the mission. The mission required six helicopters. And, and especially if we would have, you know, went to the next hide site, Desert Two, to hide the aircraft, because it was going to be the following night we would actually assault the embassy maybe one of the helicopters wouldn't start up and then we'd be down to four helicopters. So at the time there was 53 hostages still in the embassy. So we had about 107 of us as part of the rescue force and 50 and 53 hostages. We needed the, all those helicopters to get everybody out. Otherwise somebody would be had to stay behind and uh, that wouldn't have been good either. So that's why the mission was called off. It was aborted. 
So what happened, so I went on to the one e, B squadron. We went on the one EC-130. And then what happened is that behind the EC-130 were the two helicopters that had been fueled up. But the, the fixed wing aircraft were low on fuel and we had to get out of there. So what they wanted to do is to move these two helicopters that were behind us to get them out of there because the prop wash and the dirt was just covering them up. The one helicopter that was on our left rear side, when it landed at Desert One, it landed so hard, it flattened all of its tires. So it could not taxi away. It actually had to lift off to move out of the way. So when it lifted up, it kicked up a lot of dust. The pilot got vertigo, came around and crashed into us in the front left side up near where the cockpit was. And other people that witnessed this whole thing from the other aircraft said, saw what took place. And initially it was there was an internal a huge internal in the cargo bay of the, the RH-53D helicopter, it exploded, the, the fuel bladder that was inside of the helicopter. It was in some kind, you know, like a fiberglass type hard container. And when it crashed into it, it ruptured in the fire. And we completely disappeared in a fireball. So everybody thought that the helicopter and our aircraft, everybody was gone. When we were inside, um, we we they, we saw that the, the rotors cut through the top of the fuselage. There was the explosion, the shock wave, but we didn't really understand what was taking place. We did not know that we got hit by a helicopter. We didn't know what we got hit by. But during that explosion, the left front cockpit door blew in. And when it blew in, there was nothing but fire coming in. So we're on a fuel bladder, like a giant waterbed of fuel. We, we've got ammunition, all kinds of ammunition, and all this, these, this flames just come in. So they tried to open the left rear paratrooper door, but as soon as they, that's where the helicopter crashed, as soon as they cracked the door, there's nothing but fire. So they shut that and they opened the right rear uh paratrooper door and once they got that open we started going out but uh, ammunition was cooking off small arms was cooking off uh, when I as I got outside as I, I was up near the front and as I dove out the exit door uh, and I hit the ground rolled got to my feet uh, I could hear hand grenades cooking off and then we also had six red-eye missiles in there and these red eye missiles started shooting out through the fuselage of the aircraft. And so all the other fixed wing aircraft now were moving, everybody was moving away from this inferno of explosions and everything. So finally I got on another EC-130 and then when I got on there, I noticed that uh, there was a, the pilot of the helicopter was on the ramp of the C-130. The pilot, the, the three Marine crewmen that were in back of the, the helicopter, they both perished, all three of them perished. The pilot and co-pilot escaped out of the helicopter through their hatches up front, but they were 
severely burned. They had second, third degree burns, inhaled the, the, a lot of the hot gases. So I immediately started to give medical aid to the pilot. And uh, I gave him medical aid all the way until we got back to Le Mans. Um, so finally, when we did leave Desert One, as we took off, our sea, and we were very low on fuel, our aircraft hit a berm that was next to the road. So we hit this berm and we went up in the air and we came back down and finally we came up and we finally got airborne. So the crew chief or somebody came on the intercom system and said that our, our damage our landing gear may be damaged so that when we land, we may not have any landing gear to land. And then later on during the flight back, they said, we may not have enough fuel to get back to Oman. We may have to ditch at sea. And, but we actually made it back. Every, all the aircraft made it back to Oman. And it wasn't until we were at Oman did we have a head count of who we had and who we didn't have. And so we lost the three Marines that were in the helicopter and we lost the five air, air crewmen that were up in the front of the uh, C-130. So eight, eight uh, servicemen died in that mission. And that mission was called off. And then what, uh, what happened or what was like the next mission or the next operation that you were involved with? Well, we, we, we planned for a follow-on mission. They moved all the hostages through different places, prisons and different places in Iran. So the next mission was called Operation Honey Badger. And if we could have found and located some of the hostages, we were going to do another, another rescue mission. I mean, but we can never get the intelligence uh, and know. So Honey Badger never happened. After that mission, the next mission was Grenada. Uh, and Grenada was October 23, uh, 1983. And uh, yeah, coming up on the anniversary of Grenada. So that was our next mission. Uh, again, I was with B Squadron and um, I'm, and I'm a climber. I've 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 climbed before I even went into the army. I went to mountaineering school to climb. So I, I have a love, a passion of rock climbing, mountain climbing. So in Delta, I was on the mountain team. I uh, I taught rock climbing. I taught uh, mountaineering and guided rock trips. Uh, I was a, also a professional member of the American Mountain Guides Association. So we were out in Washington State. The two mountain teams were out there from B Squadron uh, doing rock climbing. And we were spent a week of rock climbing and then we were gonna do a climb on Mount Baker. And uh, so we were out there and then next thing we do, we get a telephone call, stay by the hotel. And then they called us and says, come back to Fort Bragg. So we flew back to, Raleigh, North Carolina, we were picked up in vans that were taken back to the unit. And they told us that we were in a few days going to be invading Grenada. What was going on in Grenada? Um, 
was they had a coup. There was a Marxist government that was uh, being helped by Cuba. They Cuba was in Grenada. They were um, they were expanding the airport at Point Salinas to and they were building hangars to to house Meg fighters and enlarging the airport. But also in Grenada. Uh, Grenada was one of the places where Americans go to get medical degrees to become doctors because it's cheaper to get a medical degree in Grenada than it is in the United States. So there was a lot of Americans in Grenada. Now, even though this, they had the coup and um, they were being supported by Cuba and there was these engineers the Cuban engineers that were working on the airfield, these engineers were not just ordinary engineers working on infantry. They were actually combat, Cuban combat engineers. They had been previously stationed in Angola. Uh, so, um, and, and they had, they had set up around the airfield and different points around Grenada. They had ZSU 23s set up. Uh, so what are those? The ZSU 23s, those are 23 millimeter anti-aircraft guns that they had set up at the airport and also at Fort Frederick overlooking the Richmond Hill prison. When they had the coup, all the prisoners, the, the Grenadian prisoners, political prisoners were now held at the Richmond Hill prison. Now, Reagan came on, President Reagan came on and said, the reason we went into Grenada was to rescue the medical students uh, that were there in Grenada. That's what was told to the American people. That's not the reason why we invaded Grenada. It was the re the rescue of the uh, the medical American medical students wasn't a mission given to Delta. If that was a high priority mission, Delta would have had that mission. Our mission. I was with B Squadron. Our mission was the political prisoners being held at Richmond Hill Prison. That we were to rescue the prisoners. The SEAL team mission was to the, the Governor General, the British Governor General, because Grenada is a British Commonwealth, something British. So they have a, a, gov a British Governor General. So they and he was being held in uh, house to house arrest. He and his family. So that was the SEAL Team Six mission. And our mission was the Richmond Hill prison. It wasn't rescuing them. That, that, that was a cash cow. The, you know, that, that's a lot of their money came from those American medical students getting their medical training. They ain't going to do nothing to, to do that. But so, you know, um, I don't know. Every, every, <laughs> I just don't know when people are, you have people in the government like, you know, sitting there at the White House and other, and they mislead the American public on what we're, we're doing. It's not right. Um, you know, from my personal experience from we were misled in Vietnam to um, you know, just constantly being misled by people we elected officials. But uh, so that was Grenada. Uh, Operation or, Urgent Fury. Did you assault the, that prison? We did. Well, we went in with um, 
we had eight helicopters. The first six, heli uh, these are Black Hawk helicopters. This is the first combat mission for the UH-60 Black Hawk helicopters. So we had eight helicopters, six of them, the first six were Delta, and the last two were SEAL Team 6. And we were supposed to go in before first light uh, to, and we were, to, they were going to the governor general. The, the, another mission that the SEAL Team 6 had was the radio station, the radio Grenada station. That was another to control, put their communications. So we flew in and uh, it was daylight. The mission was delayed, delayed and delayed for a lot of different reasons. One of the reasons is that uh, because of the Marines, the Marines were gonna take Pearl Airfield and the Marines were doing an amphibious assault, but the Marines do not do nighttime amphibious assaults. So they didn't want us to ruin the surprise for the Marines. So actually it was daylight when we were flying over the water into Grenada and we were monitoring the, the Grenadian radio station as we was flying in. And they said that, uh, that, and we were still over the water. They said the invasion of, a, of Grenada has begun. Grenadians go, grab your rifles and go to the beaches to meet the Americans, you know, and that's what's saying over the radio. So then when we came over the beach, there, the beach was lined with people. It, but a lot of them were just waving and everything. But every once in a while, you hear pop, pop, you know. So then, so as we go in, the helicopter seven and eight with SEAL Team Six, they broke broke off to go to the Governor General's uh, place, and then we flew into Richmond Hill Prison. Now we had fast ropes. Now this is the first operation with fast ropes. We had uh, one hundred foot fast ropes, and we were. And we got the, the fast rope came from the Brits, the 2-2 SAS. They, they were the first ones using fast ropes. And um, so my team, we were going to land outside of the prison wall and go down. And there was a guard barracks. And we were to take uh, control of the guard barracks there at the prison. So as we fly in, uh, Fort Frederick, so Richmond Hill Prison's on a small hill, and overlooking Richmond Hill Prison is Fort Frederick on a higher ridge. It's an old-time fort. Well, they had ZSU-20. They knew we were coming. The, they, I have been told, and I've never been able to confirm it, but I have been told that the mission was leaked by the U.S. State Department that we were going to invade Grenada. I was told from a source that uh, the, they contacted the Cuban embassy in Mexico and told them that we were going to invade Grenada and that uh, the Cubans there on the island should not resist or do anything. That's what I've been told. Wow. Anyway, they knew we were coming. They were prepared for us. And as we flew in, and I was in helicopter number five. And as we flew in, all of a sudden they opened up on us on Fort Frederick with the ZSU 23s. They also had some 12.7 uh, anti-aircraft, you know, 51 cal uh, guns on Fort Frederick. And, and uh, we had, at this time, we had no air 
support. We had no fast mover jets in the air for fire support, and we had no gunships in the air. I talked to one of the guys that was uh, involved with the gunships, why, and I asked him why we had no, didn't have gunships in Grenada. And he said they were there, but they were on station early because we were supposed to go early and then they became low on fuel. So they had to go off station to refuel when we, so they were off station refueling when we went in. So we had no support. And I tell you, they just opened up on us. It was just, just shut. immediately our door gunner, M60 door gunner on my helicopter was shot right off the bat on the left side. And then as we're over the prison, they were shooting at us from down below. Uh, the bullet holes were going through the bottom of the uh, helicopter. There was a toolbox there. So I, I sat on top of the toolbox. So I tried not to get a bullet in my butt. Um, helicopter number four, the pilot was mortally shot in helicopter and the co-pilot was just wounded in helicopter four, which is in front of us, which then crashed. So we were just like, the, it's just fire just coming in and, and uh, we just wanted to get out because we can't fight until we get on the ground. And um, we just wanted to drop the fast ropes, slide down and just engage on the ground. But we just hovered there, took all this firepower and then we pulled off. So we did a big circle. And then as we were coming around and we're gonna go back to do it a second time, the other two helicopters that dropped the seals off now joined us. They hadn't been shot at yet, but they joined us. So we were going in and um, again, the same thing happened. Just, uh, just the shooting at us. Uh, uh, at the time, uh, Captain uh, Jerry Boykin, he had a SATCOM radio on his back. He got hit with a 23 millimeter round in a SATCOM radio. And that took, took a lot of that out. He lost part of muscle in his arm on the, from the impact of the 23 millimeter. Um, and uh, to me, it, it reminded me of the the charge of the the charge of the light brigade during the Crimean War uh, in 1854 when the Ninth Lancers charged the Russian and Turkish position now in Ukraine and and they went and they weren't supposed to chart do a frontal assault but they got mixed up they did a frontal assault they went through all the guns and cannons of the Russians and the Turks and then they as they went through then they turned around and went back through the second time and they were just decimated. And that reminded me of the charge of the light brigade. So we went through the second time. Again, we pulled off. Had we had Huey helicopters like we had in Vietnam, all probably all eight of our helicopters would have crashed, would have just would, wouldn't have sustained the impact that we, we sustained. So we landed just outside of uh, the airfield there at Point Salinas and we, they checked all the damage and we only had one helicopter that was now flyable. 
And so we, I, I loaded into that helicopter. We put a couple teams in that helicopter and we went to the crash site of the, the other helicopter and we secured the crash site until we could get a medevac that came in off one of the Navy ships offshore, the USS uh, Mossberger. And so then we, we took all of our wounded out to, to the Mossberger. I am... Um, we had, I think we had about 19 members of Delta were wounded that wow. um, during that engagement. We didn't lose anybody. And it was, uh, and some of them were hit pretty good. Like Don Breer was, took a round right in his stomach. Uh, but we were immediately be able to get them off into, onto these Navy ships that were offshore to get medical attention uh which saved a lot of lives so there was we only in assault force we had the one fatality which was the pilot of helicopter four um and then we were going to do a ground assault on richmond hill we were just then just going to go because we had no helicopters just do a ground assault then we got word that uh, the grenadians opened up the prison and let everybody out so our mission was over. And then after, or I don't know if it was after Grenada, but maybe it was before, like it was in um, with Honduras with the hijacking. Oh yeah, Honduras. That was, uh, Honduras I think was before, I think that was 1982. We had a hostage uh, situation in Honduras. Um, the, the terrorist group in Honduras had taken a Canadian uh, aircraft, the de Havilland-7, and uh, had uh, some Honduran hostages, and they had some American hostages. I think I, I think there's 14 American hostages uh, that they held there in in Honduras. So we were immediately alerted. We, I was in the advance party to go into Honduras to because because uh, the terrorist also had IEDs on board the uh, aircraft. So there was two of us. There was Frank McKenna. Uh, he, he since passed away, and myself. Frank Frank was one of the special forces guys that we sent to EOD school. So we there was like six of us that went into Honduras <clears throat> to help the Honduras and advise them. And then the rest of B squadron was on standby uh, in case we had to assault that. But uh, yeah, they, um, they demanded the terrorist Hondurans demanded that their, that their other comrades that are being held in Honduran prisons be released and the Hondurans say, no, we're not going to release, we're not going to release anybody from prison. Well, then they wanted money. And the Hondurans said, no, we're not going to get you any money. Uh, now, there was some executives from some kind of uh, fruit company down there that were on board that aircraft. And I was told that that company actually did somehow pay some ransom for the things, but the, the Hondurans were not going to negotiate. So finally, to settle this thing, they, the, the, the terrorists, Honduran terrorists wanted to go to Cuba 
And so the Honduran government agreed to, to, if they would leave everything behind, the hostages behind, they would provide them an aircraft to Cuba. And so they moved, they moved the hostages and, to, and the terrorists moved to the second aircraft. Uh, the, the, air, the airfield was blocked off. They had fire trucks and different other things so, to prevent them from taking off. But they, and one of the agreements was they had to leave their explosives behind. They couldn't take their explosives with them. So there was some hostages that had escaped earlier out of the aircraft in the very beginning when they're trying to take control of the aircraft. Uh, and they said that they had two explosive devices and told us what they looked like, what their weapons were. So I then I went on board the aircraft and to determine if they actually did leave their explosives behind. So I went on and um, I found the one explosive device up in the front. It, it was a suicide type. They were planning on if somebody assaulted the aircraft, it was a simple closed pin with a piece of cardboard that you with with thumbtacks and just pull the paper out, makes electrical contact. And it was regular dynamite, nitroglycerin-based dynamite that they were using. And it was terrible dynamite. It was because it was hot, the dynamite was exuding. Uh, and early on in the negotiations, the terrorists were actually concerned about their, their dynamite because it was in such bad condition. So they asked me, the Hondurans asked me, what should they do? The dynamite's exuding it, leaking nitroglycerin out. And I said, I, I, I would have done something different in hindsight, but I told them that they need to reabsorb the nitroglycerin. They need to go and use either sawdust, kitty litter, you know, any absorbent material will resorb the nitroglycerin and make it safer. So they actually put the bomb into a cardboard box with the sawdust. Uh, but in hindsight, I said, I should have said, you know, oh, you got to get rid of that. You know, that, that's, <laughs> that's so unstable. It's, it could go anytime. You, but, but I didn't do that. I did what we would do with leaky nitroglycerin-based dynamite is reabsorbent and sawdust. Um, but anyway, so I went on board. I found the one device, and then I looked in supposedly another explosive device in the back of the aircraft. I searched the aircraft. I was the only one on board the aircraft searching. Uh, and, uh, I couldn't find the second device. So I, I called into the Hondurans and, and, um, they told the terrorists that they could only find one device. And the terrorists said that that's true. They only had one device. They lied about the, having a second one in the back of the airplane. It says, if they lied, they lied. Uh, there's only one on board the aircraft. So. So then they wouldn't let the terrorists leave until the explosive device on the aircraft was taken care of. So I went, in general, there was the main general in Honduras Army is a General Alvarez. So I went to General Alvarez and he had his own bomb people there. He had two bomb techs there. And I had one of our guys was... Um, um, his name, uh, Mato Santos, uh, 
Spanish speaker, one of our Delta guys, and he was my interpreter. And uh, so I, so I says, so they were going to uh, disarm that device. And I said, do you want my technical help? And they said, yes, they want my help. And they wanted to do it, but they wanted my technical expertise to take care of the device. So I went on the aircraft, I showed them where it was, and I talked them through the procedures. I says, now how, you know, I use it as a training thing, because these are the guys, and I says, um, what are you going to do? What's your, going to be your procedure? They were going to put on a bomb suit and, and then pick it up and carry it out. And I says, no, you don't, you don't have to do that. Well, first they were going to actually hit it with a J-rod. That's what their first thing was going to do is attack it with a J-rod. And a J-rod shoots a pulse of water at, at, at an explosive device at such high speed that it disrupts the circuit before the blasting cap, the bridge wire of the blasting cap has time to detonate the explosives. That's the whole theory on the, the J-Rod and they had a J-Rod. And uh, I says, but you don't use a J-Rod on nitroglycerin based dynamite. Cause if you hit the dynamite with a J-Rod it will detonate 100% of the time, the dynamite. So you might as well put an explosive charge on it, blow up the airplane and be done with it. If you're gonna. So I said, no, you can't use, don't use the J-Rod. And they wanted to carry it out. I says, you can remove the, the explosive device remotely. So I showed them how to set up a couple rope lines and putting clamps and doing everything so that we could be outside the aircraft and actually pick the device up and move it out and actually put it in a ditch without anybody handling it. So I showed them how to do that. And then once it was in the ditch, I let them use the J-Rod because they really wanted to use the J-Rod. So I you know, showed them that you aimed it right at the battery to take the battery out. And then I also told them that you always search for secondary devices because a lot of times you'll they'll hide a secondary device like a chemical delay pencil inside of the explosives so that you think you got it good you transport while you're transporting it it detonates so cut, you know i cut each stick of dynamite looking for a secondary device that could be in in there and you know if i took care of it i would have done it in half the time but i wanted to teach these guys and these guys were actually trained here in the u.s the hondurans were trained by the agency. Uh, and then I got I go back and then I hear from the agency that you let them use a J-Rod on a, a nitroglycerin-based dynamite. And I says, yeah, I did, but they wanted to use it inside the aircraft. And I at least I we did it when we got it outside in the ditch, you know. And I then I explained to the agency people and gave them a copy of my report of what took place. Um, but yeah, that was another one. <laughs> and I also want to, uh, talk about, uh, operation pocket planner, but before like diving into that, I, uh, so I had the opportunity to speak to a FBI agent that was on the SWAT team for Washington yeah, field office. One of the regular SWAT teams that were there. He was the, or uh, he which was, city? He wasn't there, but like he trained with Delta force. So is that like oh, yeah. something, is that something like. Delta Force would do like if there was a situation like that, they would help assist with the FBI. 
Yeah, when we work closely with the FBI, um, very, I work very closely with the FBI. I've done a lot of stuff with the FBI being in Delta. Um, we, when they stood up, the FBI stood up their, their own counter terrorist unit, the, the HRT, the hostage rescue team. They came to Delta and we trained, we trained the FBI's hostage rescue team, the first group of them. Uh, and as for, I'm a, I'm a breacher and Delta, besides being an EOD operator, and EOD, I became a master breacher. And that actually, I was in charge of all the breaching research in Delta from uh, 19, about 1987 to 1991, I was in charge of the breaching R&D research at Delta. So, and whenever, and we worked closely with SEAL Team 6, so whenever we did uh, anybody, whether it be HRT, SEAL Team 6, or Delta, we did a breaching research thing, uh, uh, test, all three groups are invited to, and we work together. Well, we work closely. I work closely with, with them. And so when Pocket Planner was the 1987, uh, it was around Thanksgiving time, just before Thanksgiving 87, when uh, the Cubans took over several prisons in the United States, one of them was the federal penitentiary at Atlanta. So they, we were asked, Delta was asked to help the FBI at the Atlanta prison. Now, Delta, we cannot operate within the United States because of a, a law called that was created since the Civil War called Posse Comitatus. Now, if the military does humanitarian missions, like if EOD helps a county sheriff with uh, taking care of a, 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 some, a war souvenir or a Civil War cannonball or whatever, that doesn't involve because that's a humanitarian thing. But for us to operate as a force in the United States, uh, the president has to sign an order uh, waiving posse comitatus. Posse comitatus came about after the reconstruction in the Civil War when Southern sheriffs and stuff, not always being very lawful, they would go to the next military base and they would deputize soldiers. They would make soldiers deputies and to do whatever they did. Some of the stuff that they wanted to do was not legal too. And so Posse Cabotas prevents from uh, army uh, troops being de deputized. Um, and I think it affects Air Force Two because they came from the Army Air Corps, but Posse Comitatus does not affect the Navy or the Marine Corps for whatever reason. But uh, so Reagan lifted Posse Comitatus so that we could support the FBI at the Atlanta prison. What happened, the Cubans rioted uh, and then they opened up all the other prison cells in the whole prison. There was one prison cell block called E cell block, and that was with that's your hardened criminals, solitary confinement. Uh, they let those prisoners out. Now that 
they had they had their own hostages the cubans had and they had them in a medical facility but now he had all these prisoners all it's just chaos inside the prison so the fbi wanted uh, what they wanted from delta they wanted breachers uh they wanted our commo guys they wanted our medics and they wanted our sniper observers, not as snipers, but as observers to observe what's going on in the prison because our observers are well-trained in the art of observing and recording what they're seeing. Uh, and so, and the, in the FBI, the only, only hostage rescue team is allowed to use explosive breaching. The regular FBI SWAT is not allowed to use explosive breaching. So then when I first got there, I was put on uh, the FBI SWAT team, the Chattanooga team from Chattanooga, Tennessee, as their breacher. And then, then when the HRT came there, because they were at another prison, and that prison was resolved, HRT went back, went to the Atlanta prison. So during the daytime, I was on the HRT team. And at nighttime, I was on the Chattanooga team. And I stayed right there at the prison. Uh, and uh, the team I was on uh, was led by uh, Tom, Tom Norris. Now, Tom Norris was the Medal of Honor recipient during Vietnam. And... Uh, I tell you, it was an honor to be on Tom's team. Tom has since retired. Uh, was that when he was? Hmm? Was that when he was? So he was a Navy SEAL in Vietnam, and then he became. He was an FBI a Navy agent? SEAL in Vietnam when he got the Medal of Honor. And then he became an FBI agent. He became an FBI agent. He became a lawyer. Here's a story on Tommy Norris. Great guy. I love him to death. He was on a mission. Tommy's not a very big guy. And he can look like a regular Vietnamese. And so he, he, was, he worked with a bunch of Vietnamese SEALs, South Vietnam Navy SEALs. And they had a pilot that was sh shot down uh, in the DMZ. And uh, this pilot was evading the North Vietnamese. And so Tommy, with a couple of... Uh, Vietnamese seals. Tommy dressed up just like a Vietnamese and went and went up the river on what, like a dugout with with a pole, and actually went in and rescued the pilot, and then snuck the pilot in the thing back through the enemy lines and rescued the pilot. Now there's a movie called Bat Twenty One. I don't know if you've ever heard of Bat 21. Excellent. Danny Glover's in there. He's he's up in the airplane as a fact. This guy named Hamilton is on the pilot on the ground. And this movie is kind of based, uh, inspired by Tommy's story. One of the things is the, the, the radios we had, the E&E radios in Vietnam, were not secure so that the enemy could monitor the radio transmissions and they were monitoring that trying to locate the pilots that got shot down. So what they did, this guy, Hamill, this guy and the true guy that Tommy rescued was an avid golfer and he golfed on a lot of different Air Force uh, 
golf courses. One of them was Davis Motham. So they gave him directions, golfing directions, to move to where the pickup point was. Like uh, you say, on the ninth, move, move to the ninth hole uh, at Davis Motham. Well, he knew in what compass direction the ninth hole was and how far the ninth hole was. And by telling him different holes and directions, they, they led him to the pickup point. So, of course, the Viet North Vietnamese had no clue what's going on. Um, so Tommy received the Medal of Honor for doing that. Later on, Tommy and uh, Mike Thornton, SEAL uh, enlisted, did a mission in North Vietnam. They were came in. They with with a bunch of Vietnamese SEALs. They landed in the. They put them into the wrong spot, landing place in North Vietnam. They were in. They became in the middle of a North Vietnamese army camp, and they were compromised. So the, Tommy got shot up. He took a round in his eye. Uh, anyway, the Vietnamese SEALs that were with Tommy, Mike was there back by the beach. The Vietnamese SEALs um, abandoned Tommy. And when Mike asked them where, where Tom was, they said he's, you know, Dai Weed is dead. You know, he's captain. Uh, that 03, uh, he's, he's dead. And uh, Mike went in and found Tommy and Tommy was still alive. So Tommy carried Mike under fire, carried him out of there. They went to the beach, they swam out. I don't know how far out into the ocean, Mike Thornton swam Tommy out in the ocean until they were picked up. Uh, so Tom, so Mike Thornton got received the Medal of Honor for and for saving the life of a Medal of Honor recipient. Only time that that's ever happened. It's incredible. Yeah, so Tommy got shot up, went to law school. And at that time, yeah, there had to be a, a, a lawyer accountant degree to get into the FBI. So he got into, he got into the FBI and even, and he tried out for the hostage rescue team and he made it and he became a, a team leader on the hostage rescue team. And you were on his team as that prison. Team. Yeah. During the prison thing. Yeah. What happened is uh, the, the, the Cubans came over during the Carter administration the Marianas boat people. So Fidel, because Carter with the humanitarian, his humanitarian rights thing and stuff like that was slamming Castro. Castro opened up his prisons, his criminal people that were criminally insane and other, and just all the bad people in Cuba and gave them boats and said, go to America. So that came during the Carter administration and it was during the Reagan administration. Reagan was gonna send them back to Cuba, but um, American prisons a lot better than a Cuban prison. And the Cubans did not wanna go back to Cuba. And so that's why they rioted. So eventually it was settled. The whole thing was negotiated and we did not have to assault. But while we were, they took over a factory. They had it inside there. They have a, where they can build stuff. You know, in prisons, you, you make stuff and you sell stuff in the prison system. So they had, they had a machine shop. 
they were they were making uh, spears, they were making shanks, they were welding doors shut. You know, uh, they so they had welding torches. Uh, they were just making fortifying it. Now, one of the the guys that was in there was this guy named Silverstein. He was an E cell block. He's the Aryan Nation guy. Very bad. I mean, he's he killed. He had reason he's in prison because he killed people. And when he was in prison, he killed a guard in prison. And um, so he was loose in the prison system. This guy Silverstein. And there was a fear that he had a vendetta against some of the hostages that he might kill the hostages. So the negotiators told the Cubans that if anything happens to the hostages, that's it. No negotiations. It's going to be over. It's, we're going to assault the prison. And, and so what they did is that they, they were making their own alcohol in there. And uh, anyway, they had the medical thing. So they invited Silverstein to come to a gathering they had there. And they, they, drug, they drug, drugged him. The Cubans did. And they, they tied him up, jumped on him, tied him up, and brought him to the front gate and said, here, got him out of there. So just so he wouldn't cause problems. He's still in prison today. I, I, I looked not too long ago to see where he was. You'll never be out that's crazy (laughs) um can you so i don't i don't want to keep you on like too much longer probably at like an hour and a half now but i just one of the last things i wanted to uh cover or just to fast forward to was uh the truck bombing in uh kobar am i saying that correctly kobar towers yeah kobar towers yeah well that was in um june 20 June, June 21st, I think it, the truck bombing, something like that, uh, of 1996. Now, earlier in 1995, there was a truck bombing, a pickup truck bombing in Riyadh at the American part of the Sang. Sang is the Saudi Arabia National Guard. Somebody took a pickup and um, put explosives on it, some acetylene tanks, ran it into the compound there, the Sang compound in Riyadh. And that was a year before and blew up, killed and wounded several people. One of the persons that were wounded was actually a guy I knew, an EOD guy that was wounded during that explosion. So 1996, the Air Force uh, Daharan occupied these uh, apartment buildings called Kobar Towers. They, these are, the Saudi government set these apartment buildings up for the Saudis to live in, you know, like, and, uh, but the Air Force took them over. And uh, so that was, Air Force was di- living there. What happened on that night around, is close to 10 o'clock at night. The thing is, there's two buildings two eight-story buildings, building 131 and 133. The perimeter fence, which wasn't much of a fence, it was some Jersey barriers and some wire, was only 54 feet from those two buildings. And there was a big, huge parking lot out in front of those buildings. A truck came in. It was a sewage truck. 
came in, be followed by another vehicle behind the sewage truck. The sewage truck parked in front of the building, one of the buildings, I forget which one, I think it's 131, parked in front of it and right by the, the fence there, the guys jumped out of the truck, got into the other vehicle, sped out there. Now, on top of the eight-story building was uh, two Air Force uh, security policemen on top of the building. They had a position up there and they witnessed this vehicle being parked there and the two guys running out and then speeding away and stuff like that. So they started to go down. They went to the eighth floor, knocked on each of the doors, said, you know, get out, get out of the building, get out of the building. They were down to the seventh floor when the truck bomb blew up. The bomb killed 18 people in that building that was right there. And it killed, the 19th person was in another building farther away. Most of the deaths, pretty much all the deaths because of these buildings were apartment buildings with a lot of glass frontage. And the people, I don't know if the commotion caused people to go to the window to see what was going on or whatever, but most of the, Fatal injuries were from the glass being blasted it into the rooms. The front part of the building then th thus collapsed. So um, some of the people, uh, when you looked at the, the cause of death, um, was maybe by impact cr being crushed, but they also had, they were mortally injured by flying glass, just that they're heart stopped before they could bleed to death. Uh, so produced a huge crater on that. There was over 300 Air Force personnel, 19 killed, 300 wounded. So I was, they formed a, the Department of Defense formed a task force. Now the FBI, in any case like that, the FBI is involved in it and they do the criminal investigation because Americans were killed in, in this attack. So, and, but I was take, Department of Defense formed a, an assessment team. They took retired General Wayne Downing and it was, became the Downing Assessment Task Force. General Downing took me on as the explosive investigator for the task force. I was the sole explosive. I worked, then I worked with the FBI. My job was to find out what took place there, what the explosion was working with the FBI. And um, also my job was to look at what the security failures were. And we had a team also looking at all the security failures. How did this happen? And, uh, so we determined that uh, the sewage truck contained between 3,000 to 5,000 pounds of explosives. And also the sewage truck had, was filled with sewage. So the explosives were down at the bottom. They put sewage on top of the explosives to cover it up. If anybody was to stop and to inspect a sewage truck, all they'd see is sewage. And, um, and because eyewitnesses that were there that when this explosion went off said, it stunk. It smelled like a barn explosion did. It stunk terribly. 
Well, the security there was a lot of security failures. That the there when we started investigating, there was signs that they, the compound was under surveillance. There were different probes that were that were done to check the security of the base. And the whole key is why was there only a perimeter fence 54 feet from these two buildings? These two buildings should not have been occupied as barracks. If you wanted to use the buildings, maybe have some type of day use function, but they should not have been barracks. There was enough barracks, buildings and stuff. So they had people in two man, you know, each room could hold six people, easily hold six apartment building, but they only had two people per room. And so they didn't have to use that. And the key was why was the perimeter fence only 54 feet? The Air Force told us that they asked the Saudis to increase the, the security perimeter, but the Saudis denied it. We went to the Saudis, we asked the Saudis, is this true? And the Saudis said, no, this is not true. Nobody asked to extend the perimeter. And if they were asked to extend the perimeter, they would have granted it because it was nothing but a, a parking lot that was not being used. Um, well, the Air Force didn't have nothing to substantiate that they actually made a request to the Saudis. So it was like, whose word do you take? Uh, these buildings should not have been occupied by Americans as they were. It had the, the glass in these buildings were regular, regular glass. They were not the, the glass that would, it would, you would not be acceptable in American construction. It was not the glass that uh, is designed to, you know, safety glass. Uh, they were just, it was just regular glass. One of the things you can do is you can you can reinforce glass by using a mylar covering. You can reinforce the framing and you can do buy these mylar kits to help reinforce. So that way, when the glass comes in, it comes in all together, not in shards of glass. It just comes in, just like the pretty much like the front window of your vehicle is designed to do. But the mylar is on the outside. And it's a piece of that goes over the windows. They, for some reason, they blame budget money. It was in the budget to buy these uh, kits to do the windows, but they didn't do it. They had no, um, they no, they had no fire alarm systems, smoke alarm detectors, uh, fire extinguishers. No emergency lighting that if the power goes out, these battery operate. Unsafe, a substandard uh, to put Americans without doing all this kind of stuff. And there was a lot of other things. The Air Force had a uh, mentality that, uh, you know, whereas uh, they, they were what's the word it's uh, they just I'm escaping the word that I want to use but they were more interested in comfort and welfare and how security and uh, affects security denies some stuff and anyway uh, 
it, it, this is a bad situation. They had uh, they had no way to alert people like an intercom system to say evacuate or alarm system to evacuate the building other than the knock on the doors to evacuate. They they had they did not designate uh, areas within the building to go to temporarily, like to this go to the stairwells where there are no windows and it's a stronger part, the stairwells are a stronger part to hunker down in a safe area like the stairwells. And then from there, when they're told, they can move out to another area. Uh, anyway, it was after that, we went around uh, all the Middle East. I was part of the team. We went around to wherever Americans military were stationed in the military, military East and where Department of State people were stationed to reevaluate their security and make immediate security recommendations that could be done quickly to improve security in the area. The general, general um, he was up for his second star. Congress denied he, he still stayed in the Air Force. Uh, Congress denied his second star. He took it all the way to the Supreme Court. It went to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court refused to hear the case because they didn't think that they needed, that was not an issue that the Supreme Court needs to take up, that his promotion. Uh, so he, he never got his second star, but he, boy, he fought that. Um, yeah, it was, that was kind of, that was really tragic and, uh, was that, that was, was that like one of your final uh, like operations that you were on? Yes, I'd just say I did a lot of um, other things. I did a lot of what's called balanced survivability assessments. In 1996, I was in JSOC, Joint Special Operations. I was the J3 Special Plan Sergeant Major. My job was uh, target defeat of hardened targets. And there was a lot of hardened targets we were looking at. One of them was Tarhuna in Libya. We were looking at taking out Tarhuna. That's when Gaddafi was still there. And he was, he had two, he dug these, he had two Swiss tunnel boring machines. They dug into these mountains called Tarhuna outside of Tripoli. And he, Gaddafi was actually going to make a, a, a chemical production facility producing nerve agent, mustard agent in these underground tunnels. That was Gaddafi's plan. He had, Gaddafi had a, a plant called Rafta where he was, he made small production of chemicals like mustard and stuff like that. But he was going to take it one step further and he bought these two Swiss tunnel boring machines like they did the channel. And he was going to do that. And one of my things was to destroy Tarhuna, go in there and, uh, and and destroy it before it became under production. And to it, and we were going to implode it. We we did testing and how to implode it. Gaddafi said why he bought the things was it was a great man-made water project. It was going to store water for Tripoli, and that's what the thing was. But we knew it was different. But uh, once it they decided, whoever decided to release the information to the world, what Gaddafi was up to, that what he was planning and doing. As soon as it was released to the world, Gaddafi stopped. No, he did not continue to do that. Those were like some of the targets I was doing. I did 
I went and looked at different things. I looked at different underground facilities, looking at the security, uh, you know, if, you know, for natural, you know, natural disaster to terrorist attack to a disgruntled employee. I looked at various different facilities within the United States and overseas. Um, like I looked at the, the two bunkers at the White House, that there's two underground bunkers that were made following World War II that's at the White House. And, uh, you know, recently that was in the news when President Trump went to the bunker. But uh, they were worried that uh, the concern was that if uh, there was a large explosion, that the, the blast doors would be so jammed that you could not open and get people out of those bunkers. So I went there and looked at different ways that if they were the doors were jammed, how we would get people out of the bunker. So I came up with a couple different plans on how to do that. That was kind of the some of the stuff that I did. And was that like so I know there was like a unit, I don't know if it was it I think it was up like Navy SEALs in the eighties and they called themselves Red Cell. Was that something yeah. similar? With Marcinko. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, they did that kind of stuff. Yeah, and was, I'm, not so, a, I'm not a fan of Marcinko. Yeah, I, I, all the uh, seals that I've talked to, they say that his book is fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there are red teams, even today, on certain sites that they do a red team exercise to check the security of the facility. And so that's, that, does, that is being done. I would just go in there part of the team and we would look at critical, what we look at is single point vulnerabilities. You know, what could, what could go down that would, that, you, that, that you're not backed up. It's not a redundant system and that it would be offline for a long period of time. And so we look at those single point vulnerabilities and we make recommendations to the facility owner. Uh, I've looked at the, the CUMSEC facility in Kirtland Air Force Base where the nuclear weapons are, are stored. I've gone in there and looked at their facility. I've looked at different other facilities like uh, Mount Weather, looked at Mount Weather, uh, a lot of different facilities. I, in Norway, I, I've looked at some f underground facilities in Norway. Uh, this is all part, I did this, this was through Defense Special Weapons Agency. Back then it was called Defense Special Weapons Agency. Today it's called Defense Special Reduction Agency. So uh, I, was, I would go, even though I was in Delta and JSOC, I would go on these inspections at the request. I did a lot of security things. I go to Ecuador and evaluate the, their counter-terrorist team in Ecuador. I did this Korea, the 707. They're counter-terrorists in South Korea. Uh, you know, I've looked at the different other, like Sudan I went to uh, in the early 80s. I looked at the security of the president of Sudan and made security recommendations for him. That was President Numari. He went to Egypt, had a coup. He was out of office. Um, and I've did the, the 
at the at 19, what trying to think of what year, 86, I went over to Saudi Arabia and looked at the security of His Royal Highness Prince Adula, who became King Adula. Uh, he was he he was in charge, he was the commander of Sang, Saudi Arabian National. So I looked at his motorcade security, his palaces, and made recommendations. Those are some of the things I did in my career. And not to put you on the spot, but I always ask like guests who've traveled the world, basically. And do you have like an interesting food experience in some one of the countries that you were in that <laughs> you can think of? <sighs> Probably the most recent one. It was not in the after in a retirement was in South Africa. Uh, my wife and I went to South Africa and um, we ate this, um, it's a delicacy there. It's, it, they call it a worm, but it's not really a worm. It's a caterpillar. It's a, from a giant caterpillar. I don't know what it's called, but they eat those in South Africa because it's a lot of protein and that they don't there's a lot of things they don't get a lot of protein in so we my wife and I ate one of those they were sauteed and ate one of those worms but uh yeah that's probably the strangest thing I ate and so how many years did you do like total in the military and what year did you retire I went in in 1 July 1968. I retired on 31st January 1999. So roughly 30 years. I did have a, after Vietnam, I had a two and a half year break. I did get out of the army for two and a half years. And, you know, I, I worked was in Michigan. I made, I was a press operator making body parts for Ford. Uh, and I, just couldn't see doing that the rest of my life. So then I went back into the army in October of 73. So about 30 some years. And then after you retired, what have, what have you been up to? <laughs> after I retired, my wife is, um, I met my wife on a mountain. Uh, and uh, she, she travels. She had an RV, full-time travel. She's a freelance photojournalist. She was a wildlife photographer. We start, we exchanged cards. We met up in Death Valley. I was doing some work out at Nevada test site. And then on the weekends, I'd go to Death Valley. We would hike and started doing stuff. That's how I met my wife. So on January 6th of 1999, few, uh, you know, 25 days before I retired, we got married. So since then, we have traveled uh, uh, all over. Uh, she's been to Antarctica three times, I mean, four times. I've been three times. We've been from Galapagos, the Amazon, to uh, Svalbard in the in the north in the Arctic. You know, Svalbard's a group of islands that are north of Norway, owned by Norway been to Indonesia, like Komodo Island to see the Komodo dragons. We, we usually spend half the year traveling. Uh, so, and we're, we got a trip next year that we're going to go to the Russian Eastern Arctic of Russia. We're going to take a, a ship, a small ship, 120 passengers, and we're going to go to, well, we'll spend three days at Wrangel Island, which is a huge island that's owned by Russia in the Arctic above Russia. 
and uh, we'll be going there and some other places in the Russian Arctic. Uh, the last woolly mammoths that roamed this earth roamed on Wrangell Island. Now, North America, woolly mammoths died out 10, 12,000 years ago in North America, got extinct. Up to 3,700 years ago, they were still on Wrangell Island, on this huge island. Islands full of polar bears, walruses, lots of bird life. So we'll be up, we're heading up there next summer. That sounds awesome. <laughs> and uh, have you had a chance to go back to Vietnam? No, that's a good, and I, that's a good question. I would like to. Uh, Vietnam was a beautiful comp country. The people were, were really nice. You know, um, there was a lot of things I would have liked to have spent time to see as a tourist, but it was a war going on. Um, but yes, I would like to go to Vietnam. Places that I was in Vietnam, there's really not nothing there anymore. Uh, I was at Phuc Vinh. Uh, that's where I was based out of in northwest corner of Three Corps. Phuc Vinh was First Cavs Division Rear. I supported all of First Cavs operations in, uh, as EOD in Vietnam. I supported some 25th uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment with all of their operations, the 199th Light Infantry Division. And then when First Infantry Division was still in Vietnam, we supported part of the First Infantry Division. So we had, as an EOD detachment of 10 people, we supported this area. And anybody in the northwest corner of Three Corps next to the Cambodian border, we supported anybody needed EOD in that area. We, you know, that's how we worked. So, and then during May or June of 1970 was the incursion that, you know, President Nixon says we can go in and it was the Vietnamization thing. We were withdrawing from Vietnam. We we're turning the war over to the Vietnamese. So we're going to do one last push into Cambodia and the sanctuaries to give them a good start when we withdraw out of Vietnam. So in Cambodia, I spent two months doing operations in Cambodia, May, June of 1970. I was part of an EOD team, eight-man EOD team that destroyed the largest enemy weapons and ammunition cache that was found in the, the war. There was over 300 tons at Rock Island East, 300 tons of weapons and ammunition that we blew up there. And then I was part part of a team, four-man team, EOD team, that blew up the third largest enemy weapons and ammunition cache. And that was a place called Warehouse Hill. Warehouse Hill was all underground. Rock on East was above ground. Warehouse Hill was these tunnels dug into both sides of this ridge with different bunkers where ammunition was stored underground. And so we blew those up. Second largest I wasn't on. Second largest was a place called the city, and that was above ground. The city was a built-up area that had schools, classrooms, hospitals, motor pool, uh, and of course, an ammunition dump, and that was the city. But I, I didn't go to the, I wasn't on the city. Those are some of the operations in Cambodia. And uh, lastly, um, if if you had to recommend like a country for someone who's not as well-traveled as you are, uh, 
and I'm personally, I haven't traveled to many countries yet, but I hope to, uh, where would you like recommend to like, um, to like travel to just in your own personal, personal experience? Well, it depends on what you're into. Of course, my wife is a professional wildlife photographer. So, uh, probably one of the most remarkable places that we've been to is of course the Galapagos Islands. Uh, the animals there are not afraid of you. We went on a, a cruise in the Galapagos. It, it was a motor yacht. There was only 14 of us on, on this motor yacht. And we went and we spent about 18 days and we went to all the islands from the Galapagos goes from the northwest to the southeast. The, the newest islands are in the northwest, the older islands in the southeast. We went and did the whole thing, did visit all, all the different ones. It was, Galapagos was amazing. Of course, uh, Komodo Island with the Komodo dragons. Well, I tell you, that was an amazing thing to see those. Very intimidating, eight, you know, 200 pound, eight foot long lizards that could easily look at you as lunch. And then we were with a guide who had this stick, uh, just a long stick with forked at the end. And if one of the Komodo dragons got too close, he'd just poke him with that stick and to get him away. Um, yeah, that was, that was, that was, Komodo Island was interesting. Um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting places. Our favorite places are the Arctic and the Antarctic. So we've been to a lot of different places in both South Georgia Island, Falklands, um, and, and, and also in the Arctic. Greenland, we've been to Greenland, Iceland, all that stuff. Is that uh, your favorite because of the climbing? Uh, I guess the cold. <laughs> I guess the we cold. like the cold. Yeah, we like the cold, the Arctic. Um, yeah. Wrangell Islands, uh, if you look up Wrangell Island, Russian island of Wrangell, at one time the United States claimed that island. And we tried to put a colony on that island. They put a bunch, it was a private venture. We put a bunch of Americans. We took some Inuits, the hunters and women, to sew clothing to make stuff and some Inuits to hunt. And this is back, I think in the 1920s. And, um, and we put them to colonize Wrangell Island, even though it's over there north of Russia and the northeast coast of Russia. Um, and then we left them there. And then finally, they had problem getting back. And when we finally, they were able to get a ship back to Wrangell Island, there was only one survivor. And that was an Inuit woman named Ada Blackjack. And there's a book about called Ada Blackjack that she was the sole survivor of that American group. And that was the last time we tried to say, hey, let's occupy that island. Today, there's some Russian, there's two Russian research stations on Wrangell Island. But the important thing is Russia is looking at putting a naval base on Wrangell Island. And that would be terribly wrong. Russia is, it, Russia is terrible when it comes to the environment. They, they don't care about the environment. And to put a naval, the, the Wrangell Island is like the, the Galapagos of the Arctic. On the last ice age, right, 
Ice Age, Wrangell Island was not covered by an ice sheet. That's why the woolly mammoths were there. Now, these woolly mammoths weren't the big ones. They, they were little, they're called the dwarf woolly mammoths. And the reason they went extinct on Wrangell Island is because of the genetic diversity. They had just too much inbreeding. They were just trapped on that island and they, they died out. But Wrangell Island has got a lot of plants. I think there's 400 different plant species, a lot of bird life. So we're really looking next summer going to Wrangell Island. That, we've been wanting to go there for a long time. And again, lots of polar bears and lots of walruses. And you can see the bones of the woolly mammoths laying there on Wrangell Island. Wow, I never heard of this place, but it sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, I also just wanted to say, uh, so we're coming up on two hours. Uh, thanks for coming on the uh, Late Night History podcast. Yeah, you're welcome, man. Anytime, anytime you want to talk about anything different that I was involved in, that I'll be glad to come on your show. Thank you. <laughs>